So it's saying starting. Okay. Well, so this is the Friday evening Sangha. Uh, for me, it's uh, Saturday morning. Uh, what is it? April the, uh, I don't know what the date is, 9th, 10th, 7th, something like that. Saturday. And so, um, kind of the question is, um, if you understand what is the basic practice of the Buddha from both a practical position and from a didactic or a, uh, let us say, philosophical or um, uh, uh, intellectual position, then we have a good way of getting to practice. So basically, what the whole teachings of the Buddha is at a philosophical or top-down level, he teaches Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Yeah. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda means that whenever you see something that is unsatisfying or unsatisfactory, whatever it is that's unsatisfying and unsatisfactory, do what is needed in the mind to change your attitude from being unsatisfied into being satisfied. That's the basic point. Okay. Okay. And on the emails, I say uh, a line from a song, don't worry, be happy, which is exactly the same thing. Don't worry, be happy. All right. So. As we were talking about um, the practice of waking up, uh, we're using it both as a metaphor and a literal position. As there, there is the literal uh, physical waking up in the morning <clears throat> that is always done as a process. Oh my goodness, someone is calling. Never mind. I just let it go. I'm eight seven seven numbers calling this up the bank, I think. So uh going back uh to the original point of Dukkha Dukkha Naroda, when the waking up process happens. The question is, how much waking do we have to do to really wake up? <laughs> so, um, there is a stage that happens when we wake up in the mornings in the sense that when, what's the very, very first thing that happens? This is the question because that's the point of waking up. In other words, you become conscious of something because the moment before that, when we were asleep, we were not conscious. So we became conscious of something. This is the question is what do you become conscious of? The next thing that we're going to do is actually to gladden the mind to become satisfied right here, right now. So we can practice then Anapanasati. When I'm saying Anapanasati, basically that's the Buddhist way 
of practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. Most specifically, the Sati is waking up. Then, mm -hmm. after we wake up, we can look at the kind of thought that we have. Now, what do I mean by waking up here? It means to come into reality or to come out of our daydreams or to come out of whatever we were thinking about and come into the senses of the body, including the awareness of the touch of the skin uh, uh, on the air, uh, the cloth, whatever is happening in the here now. Uh, that's especially good to do first thing in the morning because every are laying in bed becoming alert to our own sensory awareness of the body. And so we become aware of the posture that we're in. And in the regard to um, the rest of the teaching, if we are not then in a posture that would be a wholesome posture, then we change the body's posture into a wholesome posture. Yeah. Okay. That in fact, that happens almost every time immediately upon waking up, you shift your body to a more comfortable posture. Is that not the very second thing that you do? First thing you do is you wake up and you'll know that you're awake. The second thing is that you begin to shift the body. Okay. This is, in fact, out of Panasati thinking about it. So, what we're going to be doing with Anapanasati as a meditation practice is to wake up and take a look at the position of the mental body and then change that, that posture, change that position from an unwholesome thought into a more wholesome thought. Whatever we're thinking about, it can be slightly improved. And so we begin to have wholesome thoughts, and those wholesome thoughts can generally be about what's happening right now. So if you're sitting in the meditation hall and the mind has wandered away from the breath, we can just come back in a wholesome way rather than fussing at ourselves. We can wake up just enough to recognize that we're awake. And then we can go off into really unwholesome thoughts. An example of that is in the uh, Goenka meditation retreat uh, system. He says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. And when the students do just that, when they recognize the mind wanders away from the breath, they don't start again. What they do is they hassle themselves about the fact that they had to let it wander away. And they'll have thoughts like, oh, poor me, I can't meditate, or why am I here, or what's this all about? And so we start back into the normal disappointments that we have throughout life. Instead of waking up fully to come back really to the here now, and be here in the present moment, which is actually generally quite nice. But in fact, when we woke up to the fact that our mind had wandered away from the breath only a little bit, we wake up into desire. 
And so what we can look at then is the desire that we will have when we do get out of bed. What is it that gets you out of bed? What is it that you want when you get out of bed in the morning? And can you sit or lay in bed, brother, in a comfortable posture for about five or ten minutes and get the mind in a really beautiful state by talking ourselves into it with things like, oh, today is going to be such a great day. Wow, it's going to be really easy. There's really nothing much going to happen, but I can take care of it easily. And so we actually can get ourselves ready for being a winner. We can feel like a winner laying right there in bed. Wow, what a nice day it is. And I can handle this day just fine. And so these are the kind of thoughts that we're going to have as we're waking up in the morning. But this is nothing but anapanapractice, practice that most Westerners think of as a formal meditation where you go to a retreat, you sit on a cushion in a special house or a special uh, meditation hall with uh, special meditation objects at the front with a dais and a, uh, um, perhaps a Buddha Rupa, all kinds of things that people put in as the material, spiritual materialism. To where really the whole practice is getting one's own mind into a good state, which means to get it out of its dissatisfaction and bring it into a state of satisfaction. So that's the didactic way of looking at it, of getting the mind into a state of satisfaction. But we have to practice that over and over and over and over again. Well, guess what? Every morning when you wake up, it's an excellent opportunity to practice it over and over and over again for about 10 minutes. Making sure that you're breathing well, making sure that your mind is uh, clear and fit for work, and so this is the way that we can um, learn about meditation practice. I would recommend that we do that several times a day. That when in fact we can do it also right before we go to sleep at night. I mean, there you are laying in the bed, getting ready to go to sleep anyway. So why not make this? A practice. Most people will go to go to bed with the idea, oh, I've got to get up in the morning. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Oh, I've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And as they go to sleep, they've got this, that, and the other thing on their mind, and we call that dreaming. And so what we do is we move from a daydream state, way down in bed in a daydream state, and then go into night dreams. And a, uh, a better way of doing that is by practicing anapanasati, practicing having really wholesome thoughts as I go to sleep. Wow, I've got no place to go, nothing to do. 
I can lay here for the next eight hours and enjoy the heck out of this bed and this cover. And I don't have to go to sleep if I don't want to. It's my time and I've got no place to go and nothing to do, no pressures, no worries. I don't have to go to sleep. Because that's really very, very interesting is, is that people uh, normally don't get enough sleep. And so then they get tired because they work really hard and they need the sleep. But if you don't need the sleep, then it's okay to really enjoy yourself while you're just laying in bed at night. Then in fact, if you're in a very relaxed, comfortable state, even though your mind is still somewhat conscious, you're still uh, conscious of what a nice moment this is laying here in bed, that we're not worried about anything at all. And so uh, this is actually what the Buddha would call the practice of wakefulness. You go ahead and lay down and uh, just continue the meditation in the sense of this is okay. I don't have to sleep. If I do go to sleep, that's okay. I'll wake up and when I wake up, I'll be marvelous. And so this is a new way of going to sleep at night. It's with no intention of going to sleep, but more in the intention of enjoying the night. And if we enjoy the night, then sleep itself can be optional, but you'll get the rest that you need. Yes, Corey, you got your hand up. I was curious about the um, how, because um, I've tried to fall asleep consciously. I've tried to stay asleep, or I've tried to stay aware and awake up until the point of sleeping, but I just I have no idea how to do it. It's like I've never been able to crack the code. Uh, so. If we could talk it is about... a joke. It's a joke. Yeah. Here's the punchline. Is that sleep, like everything else, if you wait on it, it's not going to come. If you come, if you stay conscious of sleep coming, it doesn't because you're waking yourself back up looking for it. Oh. That's why sleep is a catch-22 that the mind has to uh, to lull off. And so what we're doing is, is that we're giving it full permission to lull off while we allow it to go ahead and go to sleep with the full permission that it doesn't matter whether I go to sleep or not. There's no intention there for one or the other. What the intention is, is for full relaxation. Full enjoyment of this so nice. All righty, thank you. All right. So, rather than having expectations and thinking that this is hard and failing at it, like I did with my mom's sewing machine, instead thinking about that. Oh, well, it doesn't matter whether this is failure or not. It doesn't matter whether this is hard or not. Let me enjoy what I'm doing right now. As I go to sleep, paying attention to what's going on with full enjoyment. As I wake up in the morning, I wake up with full enjoyment. 
that in fact by uh, working with posture in the sense of the uh, uh, the various postures that the Buddha talks about is in fact four postures. And the lying posture, the reclining posture, is referred to as the lion's pose. You can probably uh, Google the image of recline, a Buddha reclining or lion's pose, and you can see many different um, uh, places uh, where they have statues, a lot of different statues. But basically, um, about half the time or more than half the time, the dogs are laying in the, in the lion's posture or the lion's pose. But I don't think that it would be quite as trick to call it the dog pose. And sometimes dogs are laying on their back and sometimes they're laying on their uh, front uh, uh, haunches. In fact, uh, most of the dogs have a very, very heavy scab or uh, uh, hardcore place where they've been putting all of the weight of their body on their elbows. So this is not the posture that we're talking about, but what was laying on the side. Um, there's a lot of medical benefit to laying on one side. Then in fact, in the very beginning of the COVID, when they were killing so many people by putting on respirators, it's because in order to use the respirator, the people have to be laying on their back, which is not a good idea. And so um, uh, the reason for that, by the way, is, is that if you've seen uh, really deep anatomies like plastic bodies with all of the various parts put in there, you'll see that in fact, the spinal cord is actually um, in the area so that it, it is deeper in the body than the lungs themselves, that the lungs are very, very close to the back of the body here. And as you begin to breathe in and watch and notice the body, you can begin to feel where the lungs are because of the touch of the uh, cloth when the muscles and the rib cage expands. Now, if you're just having a very shallow breathing, you can't experience that. This is part of the reason why the Buddha has a long breath to use controlled breathing so that you can begin to see what your lungs are doing. And a really good time to do that is when you're laying down. Now, in our culture, we lay down on um, soft mattresses, high lofty beds, uh, you know, eight inches of springs and cotton and coils, or maybe some uh, air bed or maybe some water bed or whatever like that, trying to make the body comfortable because we're not taught how to lay comfortable on a hard surface. Now, part of the reason for that is because of the northern climate. Northern Europe needed to get off the floor because the floor was, you know, especially the concrete floors, were very cold. And so getting off the floor was a wise idea because of the temperature. But here in the tropics, we actually want to lay on the floor because the floor is cool. And so um, this is part of the, uh, uh, the point. Uh, someone would say, well, what's the issue about laying on a high and lofty bed? The answer part of that has to do with is because if you want to go traveling, do you have to carry your mattress with you? 
or look at the fact that you've now got to go check into an expensive hotel just to get a bed when you could have laid on the street anyway. Or you could have found refuge in some, somebody's house or, or, or whatever. But when we have a guest over, we expect to give them a guest room with a bed. But Thai people don't. I have been in apartments in Bangkok uh, where uh, you could not walk across the room because of all of the kids that were laying on the floor uh, asleep. And the story is, is that this family is so big that their apartment in Bangkok uh, at certain times a year, the people who are living in that apartment have to sleep in shifts. That when you're awake, it's better to be out of the apartment because <laughs> the apartment is covered with sleeping bodies. <laughs> but at least it's free room uh, because the apartment belongs to the whole family. So um, going to that issue is, is that bodily comfort is not such an issue when you've got a comfortable bed to make the body comfortable. How can you learn to sleep if you want to? You can try sleeping on the floor or at least laying on the floor for a while and practice laying down on your side, practice laying down on your back, practice laying down on your chest. With full awareness, you'll really see the benefits of, of laying on one side. Now, the left side or the right side, not so important. There's actually because of the physiology of where the lungs and the heart and all of that is, that it is kind of slightly better to lay on your left side than it is on the right side. But it really doesn't matter. But what you can do then is you now have two different postures that you can alternate from, from left to right. And I would uh, recommend that throughout the night that you practice that so that you can get out of the habit of whatever the body is laying in and that we give ourselves permission to lay in kind of any posture at all because the bed is soft. And instead, looking for how to make the body itself comfortable without having the, the job being done by the bed. And then you can get back into the bed and get into that most comfortable posture. And now you've got the best of both worlds. Now you can have both the bed and your knowledge and of how to lay down so that you can um, rest. Now, uh, some students will ask questions like, well, when you're laying on your side, what about the head? And I would say, well, the various um, uh, photos and um, images that you'll find of all of this old statues show that the head it's possibly best at an even angle so that you don't have uh, any neck pain at all, which would require uh, a small pillow that in fact the Sungate robe was often used as a pillow. Um, or uh, if you want to go hardcore Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, um, a, a slab of wood or something. And in fact, the robe itself can get pretty tightly packed but you can also lay on your arm you can put the pillow here whatever it takes to get the body really really comfortable then in fact you can pull the the cover up over also 
so that you you find a way of getting the body really comfortable. And then you have kind of thoughts about, wow, isn't this nice? Every night, I really enjoy just laying here in the bed with no place to go and nothing to do. And it feels so good. And so this is a really good time to practice, if you want to call it practicing Anapanasati. It's also just a good way to go to bed at night. Yes. Somebody turn their mic on. Is that you, Miguel? Did you say something? Uh, no, it wasn't me. Okay. All right. So I think that we've covered this particular topic fairly well. We can actually now take that whole point all around. That wherever you are, if you can remember, you can remember to have the thoughts of, wow, isn't it really nice right now? Things are really good right now. Everything is okay. No problems, no worries. Now you can do that while you're sitting in the dentist's office waiting to go to the chair. You can do that in the chair. You can do it in an electric chair. You can do it in any chair at all. Anytime you're sitting down, just that in fact, this would be a good practice that every time that one does sit down, we take a kind of a load off our feet. And so it would also be a good practice to also at that moment, take a load off the mind. So every time that you go to sit down in a chair, this is a good point in time to remember to sit down and relax, to sit down and take those long deep breaths for just a moment or two, get the mind back into a state of clarity, back into a state of being in the present moment. With the thoughts of, well, right now I can just relax. Right now there's no place to go and nothing to do. And I'm just going to get the mind in a really good state. And so every time that we sit down, that would be a good opportunity to do it. And when you lay down in bed at night, do a really big, nice 10 minute session. So this is the way of bringing Anapanasati into our daily lives is by having these triggers. A trigger of a chair. Every time that you sit down in the chair, you can sit down as if you were sitting down for a nice long meditation or a nice long nap. So we can also use the chair for the opposite. And that is, when do you get up? Whenever you get up, why? I mean, you were sitting, everything was easy peasy. There you are sitting in your chair and all of a sudden you're out off the chair and stepping away, perhaps at a trot. Why? That in fact, it reminds me of the um, the joke is the refrigerator door. There the meditator is sitting on the floor in his meditation cushion and uh, doing whatever meditators do. And the next moment he wakes up to the fact that he's standing with the refrigerator door open. <laughs> Somehow he was able to mindlessly get up off the cushion and go to the refrigerator because that's where his mind had gone. 
his mind had gone to the refrigerator and so the body went to the refrigerator and he didn't even pay attention to that was what was going on that we do a lot of stuff mindlessly and so that point of getting up out of the chair is really easy and we often get up that in fact some of you will even say hey i have gotten up and gone into the other room and by the time i got there i'd forgotten what it was that I went after. Took that long to just forget about it, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to practice using this, the getting up as a new tool for practicing Anapanasati to remember that when we get up out of the chair, then instead of getting up out of the chair into a walking posture, that we're going to go into that intermediate posture of standing. So when we get up out of the chair, the first thing we're going to do is stand. Often we even uh, start walking just to maintain the balance. So we're going to have to actually put the effort to get out of the chair with the, with the point of standing up, taking our balance and taking the second and reflect or ask the question or look in the mind to find the answer to the question of why did I bother to get up out of the chair? What was the point? Why was I so dissatisfied that I had to leave? Because that's what the mind does. It jumps around. It feels so wherever it is, it gets dissatisfied and so it leaves. So why am I getting up? Why am I leaving? Where am I going? What's the point? When we begin to ask these kind of questions, that's what gives that whole point about uh, the Buddha has, uh, you know, you've heard about the law of comma. There is actually four laws of comma, not the ordinary two. The ordinary two is good behavior gives good results and bad behavior gives bad results, but we already probably know that most behavior gives mixed results. That in fact, the behavior determines whether the original or the outcome determines whether the behavior was a good action or not. An example of that was Will Smith really thought that the hitting that other guy was a very good idea to hit him at that moment later. He had a lot of remorse. He decided that it wasn't such a good action after all. Okay. So uh, the fourth law of comma, though, is the one of the action that is neither bright nor dark. And it gives results that are neither bright nor dark in the sense of out into the future. But it does bring the end of action. In other words, let's start taking actions that lead to the end of actions and in this regard we're we're um, actually taking the action of of um, uh, reminiscing or um, investigating why we got up out of the chair if we will do that we'll begin to see many times we'll have that thought before we get out of the chair knowing that okay i'm getting out of the chair now intentionally as opposed to mindlessly. And so we're going to be bringing uh, a, a chair as a very, very good um, tool that we can use. Both for sitting down in it 
is an anchor for just, you know, maybe one minute, maybe even just 30 seconds of really happy, good moment. And if we do that, how many times do you get up out of a chair every day? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day? That gives you 50, 50 times a day when you sit down to practice relaxing. And every time that we get up, same number of times, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day, we have an opportunity to reflect about our actions, about going places and doing things so that we begin to watch. And as we begin to watch and taking that little effort to do, you'd be surprised at how much actual big heavy duty effort you start to eliminate. Because that's because things are not really all of as important as it was in the first place. That we mindlessly think things need to be done. We mindlessly think that things are important. And so we mindlessly go do them. And using the chair as your anchor, now we can do what we're going to do wisely because we're reflecting upon it. So this is how we begin to practice. We can do that even more subtly with just reaching out. You don't even have to stand up to go anyplace. It's just looking all the material items on your desk or whatever you've got in front of you. And when you pick up something, do so with the idea of rather than, because when we pick up something and hold it in our hands, our mind is always on the object itself. What we can do is change that into mindfulness of the hand holding the object. Rather than having our mind as with the intention of the object, what I'm going to do with this and all of that kind of stuff, start to become aware of the hands holding the objects that we that we hold. Mindfully picking them up. When you pick up something, the first thing like this too, the first thing that we do is figure out which, where on our hand do we touch it first? Do we touch it with the pinky, with the thumb? Play with it, experiment with it. Uh, watch every uh, index or each finger as it begins to touch the object so that you know how you're holding the object because you know the position of the fingers. Or if you're holding it in your hand with your fingers wrapped around it, feel your hand. Be there with it. This is what they call mudras, and this is actually part of learning the body. And so this is this is all about Anapanasati with the breathing and the touch and the postures of the body and the hands and using the body then and the movements and the uh, movements of the body as anchors for sati to help us to wake up. So we're using the body as a, as a new kind of tool, a tool for meditation, or um, let us say the, uh, the tools, your body is in fact the real tool that we have. Now I know some people are called a tool, but that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about it in the sense that the piano would be the tool that the musician is playing, or the carpenter has hammers and saws and nails and whatnot like that. So in this regard, we're going to be 
paying attention to the tool, which is the body itself, and we can put it to use in all kinds of ways by paying attention to what it is doing and paying attention to it, the body, doing those things. And we start with the breathing. That's where we start, is to start watching the body breathe, start getting in touch with the sensations of the body. Later, we can begin to do that with our hands so that we really pay attention to what the hands are doing. We begin to look at the tensions that we have in the body. And we become very, very attuned to the comforts of the body so that we can keep the body comfortable rather than agitated. So we can we can practice these various things. We can practice what we're doing with the hands. We can practice walking also. Uh, when you're walking, um, <clears throat> feel how hard the floor has left. Or, uh, when we're walking, is this a concrete floor or is it a carpeted floor or is it a wooden floor? Um, uh, when you're in the house, walk barefoot so that you can pay attention to your feet. But in fact, when people talk to me about uh, walking meditation, I says the most important quality of walking meditation is, is that you go barefoot. Why? Because when you're barefoot, you've got to watch where you're going. So spend a lot of time at home barefoot. That way you have to watch where you're stepping. And you can also, with the bare feet, you can get a texture of the floor, whether the floor is hard or soft, or whether it is um, uh, cold, or what the condition of the floor is. By doing this, you also begin to walk more silently. You walk more slowly and more carefully and more quietly. And so this is part of the walking meditation, is to become silent because you're paying attention to what you're doing. Ah, somebody's got their hand up. Is that Todd? Okay. Hi. Yeah, I just had two quick questions about the breathing. Um, do you only control the breath when you're doing like the seated Anapanasati, like formally, or do you also do it throughout the rest of the day when you're just, you know, waking up? Do you control it? I would recommend that every time you can remember to take a deep breath, take one. I probably do maybe in an hour, a hundred times, a hundred times or so an hour. Just remember to take a deep breath. Is it like, cause I'm good with that. And my, my breathing tends to be kind of erratic I tend to take very long slow breaths and then there are big gaps in between but then I'll take kind of little short breaths in there and and it just kind of has this kind of weird natural cycle but it it there have been times when I've tried to do like breathing exercises to to lengthen it and it's like almost like it's such a forced thing that it feels like I'm drowning like it's it actually has like an opposite effect of what's you know so I don't know, like, how, how strict should you be about really trying to keep every breath long? Is it okay to just... Strict. <laughs> strict. 
Yeah. I mean, if you're doing it to calm down, it's hard to calm down when you feel like you're drowning. Exactly. So the, uh, be guided uh, by the feeling of calm, and that'll kind of show you how your pace needs to even out. Thanks. Right. We're not. We're. We're. The culture is strict. The culture taught us to be strict. And we bring that restriction and the strictness into our practice. And sometimes it's really hard to let go of that, especially if the teachers are also trying to teach strict. Okay, but you can see that strict it, the word itself has dukkha built right into it. Who is satisfied with strict? Parker, are you satisfied with strict? <laughs> that that would be maybe a hill too high for most to climb uh, in their beginning. It's possible, yeah, for an old arahat, he can, you know, when somebody else around him is strict, that's okay with him. Thanks. But you don't have to be strict on yourself that we need to come out of that into a state of calm, into a state of relaxed. That in fact, that's the whole point of going to bed at night is to recognize that people often go to bed to get sleep, but they go to bed unrelaxed. And so we're going to intentionally, when we go to bed, intentionally relax with whatever happens is quite okay. I don't even have the tension of I've got to get to sleep, but rather uh, we go to bed with the knowledge of, oh, I want to get all the sleep I need. I'll be fine. Okay, so. In that regard, you're going to also, every time that you remember to take a deep breath, if you take a deep breath whenever you remember to take a deep breath, then instead of being strict with yourself, you're giving yourself a marvelous gift. But if you're having the thought of, oh, I should have already in the past had back then taken a deep breath, now that's being strict with yourself rather than saying, oh, well, never mind, we'll <laughs> now we'll do. Let me take another deep breath right then. That's the way of practicing. So we're going to let um, the waking up be in the beginning. There is more effort because the waking up is not so strong. But when we begin to wake up and it becomes more of a skill, we wake up so that the effort that it takes but it's, uh, is less. But part of the point about the effort being less is that not only are we developing the school skills, but we're removing some of the psychological roadblocks about I'm bad at this, or I should have been doing it better, or maybe I should be more strict. So as all of that kind of melts away, it's not nearly so much effort anymore. It's even more relaxed. And then when we get that fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path of the investigation, the sati, the waking up, the right effort, then we begin to change the attitude. 
your whole attitude towards life is about to change from this hard into it easy. Everything is easy. Nothing to it. You've got it wired. Whatever comes your way, you can handle it quite well. All the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune just go whizzing right by you. You don't stand what in What did the you world. say? What are those secret, uh, what's the four secret things? Like the, the, the secret ingredients for that attitude? Attitude, right. Attitude is the fourth ingredient of the Eightfold Noble Path that begins to bring the mind together. The attitude of friendliness, the attitude of nurturing, the attitude of uh, success. And so if you're completely sex successful, it's really easy for you to be friends. <laughs> And so this is all together is the attitude that we have is the attitude of being able to win every time that you remember. Just wake up and you're a winner. Back into your daydreams, it might be a nightmare. Who knows what's going on if you go the old way, the way that we were trained. And so uh, we're using these various things. We're using, first off, uh, the big tool of seclusion to get away from all of the other people who were already in their own somnambulation and their own disappointments. Get away from them so that now the second is, is that we can um, get away from them in our own mind the way that we physically got away with from them. And so the first thing is seclusion, getting away from it all, laying in bed at night on your own, going to sleep is the only is one place at time when you are on your own. So getting away from other people, getting out of communication and contact with other people there, how long it takes. Whether you're in a meditation retreat or whether you're laying in bed or wherever you are, getting away from others is the best time to begin to practice. And, and what are we going to practice? Removing the rest of the society. The first thing is by walking away from the physical society. Now we're going to walk away from the, the society that we brought with us in our minds. All of the past, all of the future, all the rules, all the shoulds, woulds, coulds, uh, all of the failures, all of the hard, all, all of that stuff. We're going to take a rest from that. And that's what Anapanasati is really all about, is learning how to properly rest. And one of the things that we're going to rest from is our thoughts are just following along with society. Imagine that, in fact, you did live in a small hut in the woods. Never mind about mealtime. Let's not discuss that for the moment, but rather discuss the fact that you hardly ever saw anyone, and when you did, it was normally at a distance. What are you going to think about? In that situation, you're going to think about the birds and the 
trees, and the flowers, and the breeze, and the things that are right in front of you. So let's start doing that in our society. I know that the society is very noisy and it gives you a grand opportunity to pay attention to all kinds of things. And every one of them is screaming loudly that I'm important. But when we get away from all of that stuff, we recognize, well, it was important to those people. But if I'm there, then it's important to me too. But when I'm away from it, it's not important anymore. And so we want to practice that many times to get away from it all, number one, and then get away from it all, number two. And be here in the present moment, be where we are. Be with the cicadas and the birds and the trees and the flowers and the trees and just whatever you've got. You've got a room, at least you've got a room that's free from alligators and crocodiles. Got no worries, no flurries, no bothers. Some of you've got red rooms, some of you've got orange rooms, some of you've got dark rooms. It doesn't matter what room you're in, you're safe and secure and comfortable and unbothered. So these are the thoughts that we're going to have when we're away from other people, safe and secure and unbothered. You don't have to plan on anything because you're already ready for everything. It seems like we, all of us spend our day as if we were going to some sort of uh, interrogation or an interview, and we seem to have to get ready for every interview. All day long, there's going to be interviewed, and I got to be on my toes. I got to be ready. I got to be prepared to, to do that interview. I got to be right. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. Well, guess what? That's what everybody else is doing. Why do people have to think that when they're with me, they're being interviewed for a job or something? Instead, we can treat each other very comfortably, very easy, very happily, because we know how to treat ourselves very comfortably, very easily, very happily. So I use words like nourishing rather than critical, that we're often very critical of ourselves. Even in bed at night, oh, I've got to get to sleep. I've got so much work to do tomorrow. You see how critical that mindset is? If we go to sleep with that kind of mindset, that's what our night's going to be like. <laughs> what if we're excited to work on something that is, <clears throat> I've been experiencing a lot of, uh, not a negative desire, but an excitement and an enjoyment and a, a kind of a wholesome bliss about things to come, right? I'm kind of uncovering potential and powers that I didn't know that I had. And I have the possibility to, um, to do things I never thought I could do. And so I'm beginning to experience, it's, a, it's, it's not necessarily a negative desire, like I want a Ferrari I can't have. It does relate to a kind of, it's not me thinking about the future. It's like I'm being present and then the future is kind of revealed in a, a kind of a thought or a potential future. And I'm excited that it's revealing itself to me. And it's kind of like my mind is telling me that I could do this. 
and it's uh, very positive. It's wholesome. It's it's all the good things that I experience in Anapanasati, but they are uh, kind of relating to future things. It's not necessarily present. The thought is about the future, but it's wholesome and good. And so I was hoping we can maybe talk for a second about that difference in an unwholesome, negative dukkha kind of desire. And then when you're being present and your mind, because it still kind of is a, your, your brain or thought, I'm not sure what it is exactly, but it seems like a different kind of thought that is a step in the right direction. Okay. All right. Um, let's use this example. Imagine that grandmother is knitting a sweater. She's knitting the sweater for her grandson. And as she's knitting it from time to time, she gives herself really, really wholesome thoughts about how nice he's going to look in the sweater and how he's going to appreciate it and love me. Okay, that's one way of doing it. Or she could be in a hurry. Oh, it's getting close to Christmas and I got to get this thing done and my hands hurt. And I, you know, so uh, it depends upon how we do things and the intentions that we're taking to do it. And so in that ordinary way, you're asking about a kind of an ordinary thing, um, but we do ordinary things. You've heard the Zen talk about that uh, before enlightenment, I had to chop wood and carry water. And now that I'm enlightened, I chop wood and I carry water. So this is like the result of the Anapanasati is that because they feel so different, it feels like a, uh, I've never had thoughts happen like this before. But is this the result of Anapanasati? Because it's it, it just a, a weird experience. It's so new and foreign, but it seems like that this is the result of the wholesome thinking. It becomes natural and spontaneous. Yeah. And like, I'm, yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that's what it was at first. The answer to that question, is it the result? The answer is both yes and no. It's more of that this is just the process. That in fact, uh, as you progress, more and more things will uh, occur in the sense of when we call it insight, what I mean is insight into the nature of dukkha including the insight into the nature of being free from dukkha and that we need to continue to experience that we need to give ourselves a little yippee kayo kaye from time to time about how nice things are but we don't stay in the state of yippee kayo kaye all the time but there's another way of looking at it, and this is something that comes out of the Bible, uh, where there is a passage that says, whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, all thy strength, and all thy mind. In other words, put attention into it. Put intention, watch what you're doing, but do whatever that it is that needs to be done and I would go so far as to say we can do it happily if we can get away from it all and get the mind cleaned out and fixed up so that we can bring a joy and happiness easily. 
then when we go back into the world, we'll be able to bring that joy easily into whatever's happening. So imagine that you're in a cubicle among many cubicles and the boss is walking down the hall. And all of those people in all of those cubicles, they become aware of the boss and they know that he may be coming to see them and everybody's tensed up and everybody's afraid, right? However, that's your choice. You can, in fact, be really glad to see the boss. And that if you greet him that way, whatever he had to say to you before he got to you will be easier for him and easier for you. But if you're uptight and tense when the boss comes, then that's how you're going to have that conversation. But if you're happy and joyful, and so you can take this example from the boss to just any place, the cops, wherever you go, if you can be joyful and happy on the inside of your mind and you can greet those people with joy, happiness, friendship, caring, compassion, all of them gooshy stuffs that you would want from, you know, all the religions talk about all the really gooshy stuff. But if you don't have the gooshy stuff inside, how are you going to be able to have it come up when you need it the most? dealing with other people. And so this is the part of the practice of the waking up, using the body to help us wake up so that we can get the body comfortable, get the mind comfortable, and get our feelings comfortable. And then we can deal with the world comfortably. Wow. Real quick, um, I've been, I, I'm kind of like, um, I don't know if this is the thing that we're trying to, but it seems like we're trying to live in the first jhana. Does that sound like something we're trying to do? We're trying to learn first jhana? Or is... Don't tell that. That's a secret. Don't tell that. Okay. I'll... Yeah. <laughs> Got it. That's a secret. Getting there. It's, All right. Yeah, that's a secret. It's, it's, in, it's in the suttas, by the way. It's a secret. It's in sutta number 36. It's the story of the rose apple tree. How many of you know the story of the rose apple tree? Ah, Parker knows. Okay. No. So the story of the rose apple tree, it comes, um, uh, the situation was is that the, um, the Bodhisattva, the becoming Buddha, was practicing all kinds of things. He was the very best at jhana. He was the very best at austerities. And in fact, he was so good at the austerity, he was just about to kill himself. And he fell into a, a fast running creek and he couldn't get out. And he struggled for a while and then he lay there for a while and then he finally got the, the strength and grabbed a hold of something and he pulled himself out. And then he, during that process, he had the thought of what I am doing, I'm very best at, but it's not solving the problem. It just doesn't work. All of the jhanas, all of the uh, uh, heavy duty uh, austerities, you know, there's, there's also the point, uh, you've seen the statues of the, uh, the fasting Buddha or the starving Buddha, have you seen those? Okay, that's a little over-representation but he did do that kind of stuff. And so uh, he recognized that those practices 
even though he was good at them and was building a huge number of skills, still his skill set was not giving him the solution to the question that he was wanting to answer, which was satisfaction and dissatisfaction. And so um, he then had the thought about the memory of under the rose apple tree when he was young, uh, he had already been taught uh, a lot about the spiritual world. In fact, he had a, a spiritual guide, um, Kanda, who um, this guy is actually quite an interesting character. He was the one who at the Buddha's birth says that this child will not be a wheel turning monarch. He's going to be an awakened one. He's going to be a spiritual leader. This guy also then became his tutor for his whole young life. And part that he was taught was all of the uh, rich rites rituals and all of that of the Brahmins is, and uh, the Buddhas actually knew the Brahmin stuff better than the Brahmins did. Because he was good at everything that he did and anything that he touched, he was really first class at it. He went whole hog at whatever he did. He went whole hog at training elephants. He went whole hog at training horses. He went whole hog in archery and other things like that because he was a prince. And part of the training that he got from Kanda was in meditation, in jhana. Brahmins knew all about it, old stuff. And so now he's reflecting after he has gone all the way through all of the practices as deep as he can go. He reminisces that when he was in, uh, a young man, he was actually able to practice the first jhana. And then he says, this is the path to enlightenment. And then he says, why have I been afraid of the pleasures of the mind? Because the real problem is the sensual pleasures, you know, like getting drunk and going to the brothel and smoking this, that, and the other thing, and all of these kind of things that we do to find pleasure is different than the kind of pleasure that we can have directly with the mind. And so that's where the Buddha actually says, it's right there in the sutras, that the first jhana is the path or the method of enlightenment. Why? Because if you were in the first jhana, you were in a state of satisfaction. And his whole point was to learn to come out of dissatisfaction. That was his, his goal. Because when he was doing the jhanas, when he came out of the jhanas, he would, in fact, go back to hindrances. Didn't matter how deep into meditation he went, when he came out, he was back into ordinary mind state. Didn't matter how much he fasted and how much uh, pain tolerance he could stand, he was still dissatisfied. And so he came to understand that, yes, bringing the mind into the state of satisfaction with these factors of the jhana to where we're free from unwholesome states, we can apply the mind to the wholesome, sustain the mind on the wholesome, cheer ourselves up, get ourselves out of whatever mental funk that we might fall into, and be satisfied. This is actually over and over again, we practice that satisfaction and then we get the attitude of, I've got this. 
That's the pity, the championship. It's the crown or the, the let us say, the cherry on top of the cake. We've got this. And so this is the, the quality of the first jhana. This is why I keep recommending practice to get yourself into a state of satisfaction over and over and over again to get yourself into that state easily and then to maintain it and maintain it and maintain it. Why? Because as long as you're in the first jhana, you are in that time enlightened. I mean, you're at least lightened up. <laughs> You're cool, you're in Nibbana. You're not hot, okay? But our culture is is with bottom lines and more and more is better than, oh, well, first John is not enough. I gotta have second John. I gotta have third John. I gotta have fourth John. You know, that's the mentality that we have where the Buddha is very specific. Get yourself into and be able to maintain a beautiful state well, you're watching what you're doing and you're enjoying your life and that's all there much is to it except that it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more joyful and more surprisingly beautiful because we're looking at how nice things are we begin to recognize really how things really are that nice it really is i mean what a marvelous planet we live on it looks like the, not, not the planet itself was built for me, but I was built for this planet. And we fit into perfect harmony. It's our culture that tells us that we're not harmonious enough. You're already harmonious enough. Just appreciate how harmonious things are already. So, yeah, the answer is walking around in first jhana. That's the way to go. Can you, in fact, get yourself into first jhana on the cushion and then stand up and stay in mind and maintain first jhana? Can you turn around? Can you walk out of the room in first jhana? Where are you going to lose it? So begin to play with that because that's how you're going to maintain it is by watching it slip away and say, no, come back. I got you. Corey, did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. I really appreciate it. I, um, whenever I was doing some of these practices today, I had a really amazing, um, it was periods of minutes and like sometimes two, 15 minutes, or I was able to sustain it and walk around, which for me, that's the goal. And so I was able to kind of do it, but I didn't remember the four S's. And so I wasn't quite able to practice it in the, the way that you had um, so if we could just touch on those four S's, I think, uh, satisfied and safe, and there was two other ones. Oh, I didn't recognize it like that because I always put a C in there of comfort. So safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction are the ingredients of the word sukha. Satisfaction is, in fact, the exact opposite of dukkha, which is dissatisfaction. But the components of that satisfaction is comfort, because you're not going to be satisfied if you're uncomfortable. So finding comfort, safety and security. If you feel unsafe, if you're in an insecure situation, then you're not going to be satisfied. You've got to be on your toes or on alert for danger now. 
So part of what we're practicing here is to recognize that we're on, in the state of danger way too often. And then in fact, there is the reality is there really is no danger except that which we talk ourselves into. Like, oh, I've got to go pay that payment or, oh, I've got to go to the bank or, oh, I've got to go to work or, oh, I've got to go, I've got to go, I've got to go. That's the whole point of the chair exercise is when you stand up, look at all of that. I got to go. I got to do this. I've got to do that kind of stuff. Sometimes, in fact, students have said, you know something? I got up the other day, had that reflection, and I sat back down and just did some out of Panasati. I didn't need to go at all. <laughs> and others will say, you know, I've been practicing that, and I get 10 steps away from the chair before I figure out, that, oh, I'm going to stand before I... And the answer to that is, well, if you can remember, just stop and stand and reflect upon that... You, you're still wanting something. Yes, go ahead, Raul. Hey, Damarado. Um, so, <clears throat> like, there have been times where I'm actually meditating or just sitting and chilling, where I'm like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. And I manage myself to to stay there and just like, oh, no, 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 there's no flower. And like, like, okay, it's cool now. But there are also times where I actually get to do stuff like um okay no i get to deliver this to my boss and stuff like that or i gotta wash the dishes i gotta clean my room i gotta do this and so That's, i okay wait a minute wait a minute let's go to dishwashing for a second uh-huh you use the word i gotta wash the dishes mm -hmm. okay. yeah like they've been how so about long. having the thought Oh, I'm enjoying washing this dish. Yeah, like that. That's what where where I was going. Like, I start doing like the same thing I do with my meditation. Like, ah, this is okay. Like, this is okay. Like, no, I I don't gotta do anything else. Like, I can just chill and I can just go here and stay here and enjoy this moment. And so I start doing the same thing with the whole other stuff that that i've been doing like i'm enjoying this like I'm, but i'm enjoying this and there's no problem like like there's nothing going on like it's safe it's okay so like well that's prior to doing it but when i'm when i start doing it it's like ah oh, this is nice like mm -hmm. i can pay attention to washing the dishes oh i can pay attention to do to doing my my work like Oh, I can pay attention to making my band. Oh, this is nice. So, <laughs> I, I, I find it nice to to go ahead and expand. Sorry. So to expand this. When I do this in my meditation, then expand it to my to mundane task. I don't know how to call it, like to to normal life, <laughs> to to life. Actually, to to life. That in <laughs> fact, it won't be normal anymore because normal life is uh, <laughs> some nonpolitic. <laughs> yeah. so, it's sleepwalking and it's got dukkha in it and um, all of the stuff that goes with it. So 
uh, in this regard, we can say that we are now having life, but we're having it abundantly. Okay, that we when we think of it in term, Christian terms of everlasting life, they get the idea of a clock's everlasting life in the sense of I'm still alive after I die. But a much better way of looking at everlasting life is, yeah, this moment I'm alive. This can last. I can last to the next moment, too. Okay, that it keeps lasting and keeps lasting and keeps lasting. It's everlasting life because I keep practicing. So when is it everlasting? Every time I remember that it's everlasting. Here I am, still alive. Isn't that marvelous? Wow, I can take a deep breath. But the other kind of everlasting life actually has a has a quality of, but this ain't it yet. That I will have everlasting life, but this ain't good enough. Mm. I'm not quite satisfied with this one. <laughs> so the question then is, can we become satisfied in this moment and have really abundant life right now? And practicing that over and over and over again. That's what it takes, the over and over again quality. We have to keep going over and over and over again because we've already built up all the habits of dissatisfaction. Because why? Because we did it over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and so that's the repetition. And when do we do it? Whenever we remember, knowing that our when do we remember is a skill that we're going to build up so that we remember often. And every time we remember, we can take a deep breath. So we can focus on that. Every time I remember, I'm going to take a deep breath and then clean out the mind and have a wholesome thought. If you did that and did it every time you remembered, you don't need any other kind of meditation. That's enough. Just take a deep breath, clean your mind out, come to the present moment. Yes, Todd. I was just wondering, so, and I can see how, you know, a lifetime of this sort of thing would be very helpful, like at the moment of death, but I was wondering, is there any kind of, I don't know, enhanced practice that you would use at the moment of death, like you're in the, having a heart attack, you're, you know, the initial thing, your body panics, whatever, is there something else that you would recommend for that, or just hope that you have years of this practice ahead of time? Well, let me ask you that question this way, then. Uh, Would you rather be having a heart attack and in the process of dying and being uptight and intense about it? Or would you rather be having a heart attack and being at the point of death and be completely satisfied? Yeah, this is the time to go. That's what I would like to happen. I just know from from past history, not of dying, but of, you know, being in extreme pain after surgery or having, you know, some other really thing that all of a sudden, like, I'm telling myself what I should be doing. And yet, 
like that just doesn't it doesn't come online like there's something else you know takes over mostly they uh at least antidotally they haven't i don't think they have the capability of doing the research it's really hard to have people all hooked up to all the medical equipment at the point of death they have been able to do that occasionally but normally the anecdotal information is is that when people have a heart attack it's because their heart is being very stressed right then and there okay one of the ways is too much exercise another one is having sex that in fact that happens to too many prostitutes the guy drops dead right on top of her Okay, and and other times like that. So you mentioned heart attack, and I'm my questioning now is, how did you get yourself into a position so that you and your heart were such enemies that your heart attacked you? Well, I, I have, I'm trying to avoid it, but my my father died of one at 44, and his father died of one at 45, and they found out like seven years ago that I have like, you know, very high risk of it due to, so I've done everything I can physically beyond that. I have, thankfully, I have a very different lifestyle. I have a very different emotional state. My life, thankfully, is very oh, relaxed. So and maybe it wasn't the genes that attacked their heart, which attacked them. Maybe it was their lifestyle. That's, that's my hope. Yeah. But no, I mean, don't make it a hope, make it your understanding. Hope is kind of, oh gosh, spit in one hand and hope in the other and see which one fills up, okay? (laughs) But you can look, an example of that is, yes, my dad did die at the age of 65, which is the typical time of death, but he was a heavy smoker and a drinker, and he worked with asbestos when he was, um, uh, gosh, in in his middle ages. And so he had all the contributing causes to an early death. My grandfather died at the age of 59, but he also was a heavy smoker. And so not smoking and not drinking and having an an easy lifestyle is a guarantee then that you could probably live right on. But if you hassled yourself about worrying over a heart attack, it might take the hint and, and attack you. <laughs> totally. totally. But I was, you know, and so I, I tried. I'm, I'm, that's not kind of in my plan. I, I think I'm, you know, I'm doing everything right. But I feel like no matter what happens, if whenever it, it, we, unless we, you know, luck out and die in our sleep, there's, there's always going to be that moment of, oh, this is it, you know, this is going. And, and so I'm wondering what, beyond just the trying to take a deep breath if possible of gladdening the mind in some way you know is there is there gladdening the mind by saying i can i can handle this okay that i would recommend getting yourself into a medical uh place i mean i have been there where the uh emt the ambulance or whatever this the meat wagon They've been trying to get me to go to the hospital and say, I'm not going to ride with you in your meat wagon to the hospital. Not going to go. There's been a while since that's happened, but um, uh, because in the last time, because I'm in Thailand and because I'm 
practicing the way that I, I practice when Tam says, no, you are going to get into that ambulance and you are going to go to the hospital. I say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but times have changed and I'm I'm willing to uh, uh, to let the medical stuff uh, be as it may. So um, I would never recommend to you uh, to let us say happy mind yourself out of a heart attack. Sure. But you can happy mind yourself while you're getting the heart attack attended to. And the best way to, uh, to attend uh, uh, to the to the heart attack yourself is by not getting yourself into a position of having one. That's the very best way of going is, is that knowing that uh, that there are certain things that you can do. So you do it and congratulate yourself. Hey, I've got this wired. And you'll probably die some other way. There's a lot of different ways of dying. Your, your choice, how, how would you choose to die? In my sleep, preferably. I think that would be me. Okay. I would actually like to be awake for it. I don't want to die in my sleep. I would rather be quite awake and watch it happen. Happily. I don't want to miss such an event as that. I mean, we don't ever get a chance to die often. And here you are wanting to sleep right through it. I don't get that. <laughs> I think what you're saying is you want to avoid the pain. I think the pain and the possible fear of, you know, of the unknown, I think, is is an issue yet. I know. So instead of having the fear of death, have the attitude of let me at it. Let me at it. I've had enough of this. I want to find out what's really going on. Let me know. I want to see. All right. Then then you're not afraid. You can be eager for your own death. And then it gets really elusive. I mean, I uh, that's the hardest thing I've ever tried was dying. I've been not been able to do it yet. <laughs> and I want to watch it happen. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I've, I've gone through periods of my life where that seemed like the the reasonable thing to, you know, the reasonable attitude. And then it's like, I, I kind of wonder like in that moment, is it just going to be like a panic switch that goes on instead? And, uh, you know, all well, that plan, plan on it. Think about all the different ways that you could die. Think about it. Think about them strapping you to the chair and giving you uh, the juice like they did in California back in the 50s. Think about the electric chair. What's it going to be like for you to get fried? How about hanging? What would it be like for you to get hung? Yeah. How how about starvation? What would it be like to actually have to starve to death? What about having your guts blown out and you got your intestines in your hand? You're watching all the blood and everything gush right out. And then the fade and the darkness comes, okay? Actually, the fade and the darkness is going to come no matter which way you actually die. Mm -hmm. Okay? But you can have a, I mean... I can't think of, I mean, CNN is not nearly as entertaining as my own death. But. 
And so we can take it then. Death becomes a sport. Death becomes a toy to play with. But they talk about it in the in the some scriptures about death has no sting. Got no sting. Got no fear. That's conquering death. Is not that you survive all cases of death, but rather that you can handle death quite happily. That's conquering death. Because if you can conquer death in your mind now and continue to have the attitude that you can handle that, then what else is your problem? (laughs) All problems become trivial. That in fact, the only reason why things are important to us is because we think of them as a survival issue. Oh, I can't survive without her or that. Right? And so this is why we make things important. When we recognize, hey, if I'm not important, my own death is not, there's nothing to it, then why do I cling so much to make everything else so important when nothing's really important? Why don't I enjoy my life rather than making everything important? So taking the criticism, take the importance out, just everything's already okay. Hey, man, go ahead and die. It's all right. Nothing to fear. So, what do you think, Todd? Yeah, I think that sounds good. <laughs> I think that's that's helpful. Um, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, does anybody else have anything to say? Yeah, it was great seeing you. <laughs> All right. I had well, um, one other. Go ahead, Corey. Well, I had one other question that I wanted to go over. Um, whenever I was doing some concentration and practices today, like the mind, I would have the intention to focus on something and concentrate on something. And my mind would keep um, doing the mindless thing. It would keep on going to, it, my, my head would just turn and I didn't have the intention to turn. So I had the intention to stay focused on the object that I chose to focus on. But the mind kept looking away and it kept uh, searching for the pleasure. So the thing that I was, going to meditate and reflect and think on later on today is why is pleasure so addicting and why does our mind constantly seek pleasure or I call it pleasure because that's essentially what it feels like it feels like what I'm concentrating on isn't um, pleasurable enough so maybe I'm not doing the first jhana but this kind of um, addiction of pleasure is one thing and then the other thing is that the deeper issue is the ego or the idea of ourself somehow relates to pleasure and um, or it's like it's kind of like this fundamental issue of um, comfort. It's like the ego has the appearance of being comfortable. There's something to do with ego and comfort and that relates into like why the mind is always seeking comfort in these places that don't actually have comfort. So it's kind of a compound issue. Um, <laughs> And I was like, it just, I don't, I don't have any good answers yet, but I'm looking into it. 
but hopefully right. we can. Here's, here's a way of starting off with this. You've probably heard of the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, all right. Now, we'll, let us use the word pleasure in the sense of either things are pleasurable or not pleasurable. Another way then of discussing it would be things are either unsatisfying or dis, uh, dissatisfaction, or we're in a state of satisfaction, which is your calling pleasure. And the Buddha says that. Why would he be afraid of the pleasures of first jhana? Because the pleasures that, you know, even the Christians there, they call it carnal pleasure or the pleasures of the body or sensual uh, desires. This, um, the things that we have as products, beautiful objects, beautiful women, beautiful cars, beautiful this, that, or the other thing, because we take delight in the mind's eye with those objects. The question is, is can you take delight with your mind's eye without it being focused on those objects that then you would want? In other words, why don't we focus on the things that we do already have as pleasurable, the things that actually do exist right now? Because the opposite is going to be being displeasurable or uncomfortable or unsatisfied. So, yes, this is not only a state that we are looking for, but this is what the whole path of the Buddha is all about, because we feel all of us mostly as being unsatisfied. We're, we're not, uh, better say, we're not willing to just relax into satisfaction. We've got to go do something to get it. Wow. So I just had a revelation. Want to hear it real quick? All right. So, some something about the ego is identification with the body, and the body gets pleasures because essentially, when we talk about pleasures of the body, these are like aesthetic things or drugs that make the body feel pleasurable, and we don't have to do any work for them. So, the ego is essentially a kind of a faulty identification with the body. We believe we are the body. That's when we talk about ego. That's what we're talking about. Is this sense of uh, belief or uh, understanding that we are the body or that we're somehow related to the body. And then somehow that seems to um, factor into this whole equation, right? Essentially, the pleasures of the body is kind of facilitating uh, satisfaction without really doing any work. And then it seems to be like, because it's so easy, everybody likes, you don't want to do the work, right? Everybody wants to just have the, the status we want to get satisfied without doing the work. Right? Yes, exactly. That's exactly why. Here's a clear example of that. It's called the chick magnet, a particular car that the young guy thinks that if I had that car, I can get all the girls that I wanted. I can't go get girls by myself. I'm not good enough. But if I had that car, then I could get a girl. All right, that's exactly the mentality um, uh, that we're talking about here is looking for something to make li like a drug to make my pleasure easy or possible. Rather than recognizing, no, we can get that pleasure easy, it's quite possible. 
You've already got it if you just let yourself have it. Here it is. Stop being dissatisfied or wanting the chick in order because, in fact, we want the car to get the chick, but we want the chick to feel good. So why do we have to go through the car and the girl to feel good where, in fact, by the time we've got to deal with that car and its payments, we got to deal with that girl and that woman. Where's all of our pleasure anyway? Yeah. So let's not try to go get pleasure from the outside world. Let's go get it directly. By talking ourselves into it. By recognizing everything is already okay. I don't need the girl. I don't need that car. I'm okay right now. And the reason why it feels so, I say hard, but it's because that's how it feels. And what we're really talking about is a kind of imbalance where the body is prioritizing. The body is kind of addicted to, or our mind is kind of addicted to the easy pleasure. And when I say easy, it's essentially a zero pleasure. You don't have to do any work at all to get the, you just have to do the drug or you just have to be around the woman. And the, except on the that. Except that getting that drug is not all that easy and being around that woman and pleasure is not all that easy. So it's not an easy pleasure anyway. That's why we're looking for love in all the wrong places, because you think that the wrong places is going to be easy and you take it and they're not easy and there's no love there. This is the whole point that the Buddha, in fact, your question is exactly the Buddha's question when he was asking under the rose apple or when he was reflecting upon the rose apple tree, why am I afraid of going after the pleasure directly? Why not just get it directly? Why do we have to go through, in his case, all of those austerities or in, in his case, all of those jhanas or whatever that he's going to do? Because just relax and be satisfied. Yeah, but we have the identification with the body. And when we think we are the body, essentially that I think I'm try, I'm going to try to answer that question in meditation and reflection, but it seems like the barrier why am i afraid it's because that faulty illusion the faulty identification with the body realizes that it might die if we learn how to give ourselves pleasure um so there's almost like this it, it puts up the fight of its life to try and defend it gives you all these pleasures and ideas and desires but it seems like that there is some kind of um it's it's not a real death it's kind of like a illusion in the mind but it's it's kind of like a it, let us call it a sense of loss mm -hmm. a sense of losing something which is which happens a lot one of the things that i'd like to back up on is is that yes you are absolutely correct corey we identify i am the body but we identify with not only i am the body but i am the feelings and we also identify with I am the thoughts that this is how I think this is therefore me. And because I think that what I'm thinking is true. And so we identify with the body, we identify with the feelings and we identify with the mind and the thoughts. But when we can begin to recognize that I am not the thoughts nor the thinker, I'm the observer. 
And then we recognize, wait a minute, the thoughts and the thinker and the observer are still just observations. There's no even an observer there. There's just the observation and the thoughts and the feelings and the body. That's all there, but I'm not any of that stuff. I'm just a moving target. And I'm the one who is enjoying it in the moment or not, my choice. And so in that regard, uh, the self is actually a, really a moving target. It's all over the place. We're not fixed. And yet we think that we're fixed because the body is actually quite long lasting. But I would like to point out, look how many industries in our society are in business and have a, a, a something going because of all of the other people that do identify with I am the body. I mean, when you go to buy an article of clothing, you identify with I am the body. So the fashion industry, the clothing industry, the shoe industry, they're all catering to I am the body. How about the cosmetic industry? How about the weightlifting and gym industry? I am the body. We could even go so far as to much of medical science now as I am the body with Botox and cosmetic surgeries and all that kind of stuff. But then we have the old style of medicine, I am the body, with all the hypochondriacs. My mom was a hypochondriac. She would take me to the doctor at the drop of a hat. And so uh, I got used to doctors having to deal with me when I knew what was better for me than they did. There was no reason to go to the doctors. But anyway, back to the whole point is, look how much identification there is with I am the body. We've got all of these industries that in fact, you could go so far as to say even Tesla is I am the body because I want to put my body in that car and have my body go someplace. So that's uh, almost all of industry has to do with I am the body. I wonder what about uh, the news industry? That's the I am my feelings. So we identify with all kinds of things as I am this and I am that, where in fact, whatever it is, you're not that. Let's not worry about who you are. Let's worry about what you are not. Because what you are not is dukkha. And anytime that you identify with something, that's the dukkha. But you're not any of those things. And so this is why the Buddha recommends that it's unwise attention to pay attention to who am I. But it's rather to pay better to pay attention to this is dukkha and this is the cause of dukkha and this is the end of dukkha and this is how I get myself out of that dukkha with this breath. And by staying with the four noble truths over and over again, let's not a, let's actually go so far as to say we're even going to make the 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 issue of who am I irrelevant because who you are is irrelevant. Who you are doesn't mean anything because any way that you identify or define yourself, you're still subject to the Four Noble Truths. Many people identify themselves as who am I based upon their profession. 
weightlifters will identify themselves more as I am the body. Beauty queens will identify themselves as I am the body. But most of us will identify as I am an, uh, an intellectual or I am a thought process. So I'm an engineer or I'm a coward or I'm a hero or I'm a this, that or the other thing. To where in fact, no, any moment that you're a coward, there's going to be moments when you're not. Anytime you're a hero, there's going to be moments that you're not. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. So let's not worry about who we are. Let's worry about how this whoever we are, which is not anything much at all, is at least free from suffering. <laughs> and so that's the insight into ego. The insight into ego isn't nothing to it. Thank you for everybody for allowing me to have a lot of uh, talks and conversation. Hopefully it was insightful or beneficial to other people. And thank you, Domorado, for taking the time and helping me out with some of these things I've been working on. I appreciate it. I'm having a, I'm having a ball. I'm having a blast here. You don't have to thank me. I'm, I'm the one who's enjoying this as much as anybody. The pleasure <laughs> is all mine, so they say. <laughs> all right. I'll share it too. <laughs> All right. Yes. So you guys, I'm really glad that we were able to have this conversation. Um, uh, oh, you're still on. And Robert, I haven't seen anything of you, Robert. You're still there, I suppose. I guess he's not. Okay. So, Parker, do you have any last comments or anything to say before we finish? Um, it might be beneficial to some of you. We just finished uploading the videos as podcasts or people watching this video um, on the YouTube that the uh, Dom Rado Dama YouTube videos are now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other podcasting services. Oh, wow. Cool. That's great. Thank you, Parker. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I'm following you. Okay, I was going to hopefully hear from Parker, uh, excuse me, Robert, but I guess that he's uh, uh, not going to be here with us right now. So anyway, I thank you all very much. This has been a very uh, happy and joyful conversation. We've covered quite a lot about the body and how to use the body to help wake us up. But the last thing that we can say is, and to wake up to you are not the body. Whoever you are, you're not it. <laughs> That's not who you are. So thank you, guys. Thank we'll you. See. God bless. We'll see you. Okay, bye-bye. We'll be seeing bye. you. Cheers.